Welcome to Just a GP. My name is Ashley Broomfield and I'm here with my co-host Charlotte Hesby. And today we have the pleasure to interview Dr. Johanna Lynch, who is a GP up in Queensland and has recently written a book called A Whole Person Approach to Wellbeing. And she is also the president of the Australian Society of Psychological Medicine, which is a society that I've had the pleasure of joining and have met many wonderful GPs who are part of this society and and it's a very warm and welcoming community. So I am so excited to chat to you, Johanna, today around your work in general practice and in this space. Thank you. It's lovely to join you both. We always start with a highlight of the week. We always start with the guest, starting with their highlight of the week too. So I thought I might be greedy and go for two. My first one is that I got to watch a bunch of about 20 dolphins surfing two waves off the coast on Stradbroke Island on holiday last week. The second one I thought I'd mention is that this morning I met with a group that I've been meeting with for 12 years, multidisciplinary clinicians. Today there was pediatrician, GP, nurse who's an emergency nurse who's done counselling and a social worker. And that group has been such a rich place to take difficult cases, disappointments about the health system, and each of us growing as clinicians over time. And one of the clinicians has given me permission to read you something that she gave us today, which was a therapeutic letter she wrote to her personal support group of physicians. And she shared with us sort of the background behind this, but I think the letter speaks for itself. And I thought it might be an encouragement to your listeners. So all the GPs out there listening, listen to this letter from one of your colleagues. Dear colleagues, thank you for the many years of dedicated study and work and countless hours of unpaid overtime put towards honing and using your skills in your chosen profession. It speaks to your determination, persistence, contribution and care that you have done and continue to work so hard. As you search for the sparks and strengths in those you care for, I wonder if you can remember and nurture the sparks in yourself that led you in this direction so many years ago. It can be hard to see them buried under the layers of armour to protect yourself against the fear of not making a difference in a system that does not value you. I wonder if you can recognise in yourself the ability to witness and hold the challenges of others every day while trying not to be consumed by the struggles of those you care for and your own struggle in trying to help them find what they need and finding and maintaining boundaries within yourself and while pushing back against the boundaries imposed by a system in which there is never enough for those who need it. That is tough work. I wonder what it is that keeps you going and what it is that you need to be able to recognise and nurture that part of yourself. I see you and I appreciate you. That's very special, isn't it? And not very many people articulate that well. I do know that I and I'm sure lots of my colleagues have been told things, messages like that by patients in a one-on-one context. But when it's written, it carries a real longevity about the message which is lovely thank you for sharing that well I'll move right into my highlight of the week which is a very special one actually in the midst of Sydney lockdown and an ongoing community 
infection rates, which sort of led to a bit of despondency, can I say. My daughter has given birth to a baby boy, which is extremely exciting and lovely that it was managed safely within this community of everyone being anxious. And her husband was able to be there with her while she birthed that baby, which was her biggest fear that she would be alone. So she wasn't alone and she and her new baby boy, Ari, are back safely home. So that I couldn't ask for a better highlight and a reminder that life is about those sorts of moments to cherish and and hold warm to your heart. That's wonderful. So I have a guilty highlight. Because Sydney remains in lockdown, it meant that I was able to extend my ski holiday next week for a couple of days <laughs> because the people who'd booked after us for the weekend had to cancel and so I was able to stay another couple of nights. So I'm really excited that I can't remember the last time I went skiing and I did a meditation teacher training earlier this year that I'm just ticking off now for the little, you know, tick of approval. But we would do these sort of situations where you sit down and just imagine yourself in a place that you know was your happy place and I just kept imagining skiing over and over again and so when it came up to go down I like booked it in and I was like desperately waiting I was like it's fine it's only gonna be four days that's totally enough at least it's something and I don't even care if there's no snow because it'll just you know whatever and so I'm, I'm really excited that I get to stay a little bit longer awesome snow and I know and I've been getting the snow updates and it's just bucketing down that's part of my highlight is that I'm, it's gonna be like amazing snow and not too many people there but I also know that I'm benefiting from somebody else's tragedy in that they probably had also booked a holiday that they've had to cancel and that they can't go to so I will very much appreciate it and enjoy it as much as I can for that person. Yeah please do because I'm going to have to miss my week of first time in years that I've booked to go to the Australian snow you know you have limited holidays and we usually go somewhere else I confess. First time we booked in ages and (sighs) doesn't look like August and Sydney ciders are very happy at all. Never mind. So enjoy, Ash. Enjoy. Joanna, the title of your book says so much and really I think speaks to me as someone who sees myself as a clinician who sees the whole person in their context and not treating just illnesses but optimising well-being. So how was it that you got to the stage to write a book based on your PhD research? There's so many directions to go with that question. The first one is to say that the best exam I've ever sat was my oral exam for my PhD because I was there with two people who'd read my PhD and they just wanted to help me make it into something real. And one of them said, you need to put this into a book because it's too much of a big idea to try and communicate in a journal article. And so it's his encouragement that made the book happen. That's Professor Kurt Stange, who was former editor of the Annals of Family Medicine. And I guess that's the kind of easy answer. The longer answer is that I was a GP in suburban Brisbane 
I might have had a little bit of experience in psych hospital. Can I just intervene at that moment? You said <laughs> I was a GP. Can I remind you that you was, you is and you will be. Once a GP, always a GP. <laughs> That's lovely to hear. That's a lovely blessing from you, Charlotte. And yes, I guess that that's a beautiful reminder of the journey I've been on because I worked as a GP in a clinic and as we joke about women seeing the tears and the smears, I saw a lot of the tears and I developed an expertise in that space that drew other members of the community to me. So much so I was then doing work that was beyond my expertise and I went and did extra training in postgrad training in grief and loss and gathered a collection of courses from the social sciences in attachment and trauma and other trainings around grief and brought that back to my work in general practice and found that it was more helpful to my patients than it was on offer in the mental health space. And it started to change my practice, change the questions I asked and change the people I needed near me to do it. And I asked my own practice if it was okay if I changed my practice to do long consults, knowing it would be a cost to me and to the owner of the practice. And thankfully, he gave me the blessing to do that. And those patients taught me what was important, what mattered to them, what changed their lives, what didn't help, and challenged me to go and learn what they needed. So I guess I see that as one of the key things about being GPs is that we're an early warning system about what helps. You said you changed what you asked. might be a bit mean to ask, but can you sort of just give me a little context of a particular sort of question that you might have asked in the past, how you actually frame it differently now, just to help us understand that? Yes. So like the big overview is that in trauma-informed care, the main thing that matters is helping someone feel safe and stable. What they call stabilization is the first phase of care. And I realized that really aligned well with what we did as GPs anyway. Like we cared about someone's housing and their finances and how their marriage was going as and how their boss was treating them and how their teacher was going with them and what their coach did. Those were kind of natural things that we cared about anyway, but it put a language and a kind of prioritizing around that. It sort of validated what I was sort of already doing because that's what was needed. And so I started to look for security, look for safety in their lives and ask them questions about where it was and when they experienced it and how we could make it more of an, their experience. And that's really led to the core piece of my thesis because my thesis was called Sense of Safety, A Whole Person Approach to Distress. And my book is called A Whole Person Approach to Wellbeing, Building Sense of Safety. And what I saw was that it also was really aligned with the physiology of how human beings respond to being safe and how that links to immune processes and stress reactions and you know our endocrinology and and so it actually was directly relevant for GPs to understand how much of someone's life they'd lived in fear and how much they had reprieve from that and chance to catch their breath and recuperate and I give an example of a patient that I cared for for years like two or three years she was extremely distressed she was mostly mute in our first sessions and we had to use writing and me saying things and her nodding to get anywhere. 
And at about the three-year mark, I learned some new things and I asked her a new question. And my new question was, was there anywhere in your childhood that you felt safe? And she hadn't been able to tell me the extreme experiences she'd had. It was just too hot a topic to explain. And I know not to push in that space because of the priority of safety at all times. And she answered on the school bus which was kind of shocking to me because that's only term time and only for however many minutes between home and school. And it's also a place that other people don't feel safe. So it really contextualises what safety might mean for people. Mm, Like it's probably not the kind of safety that we would find our most safe place. But for her, it was better than nothing. And it gave me information about what school was like and what home was like that really I didn't need much more to know that the other places were dangerous and that gave me enough information to work with to see the pattern of what was going on for her. And then I asked her what it felt like to be on the school bus and she said, like a deep breath. And so I was really struck by the physicality of that answer. And I credit her in my book and with her permission, use that story. And in fact, I saw her yesterday and she's sort of in in the middle of my work, that, that answer, like a deep breath, because it kind of helps me understand why all GPs and in fact, good quality general practice is always trauma informed. And by trauma informed, I mean aware of life story, relationships and meaning and how they impact health. And so she's a good example of a changed question. Another changed question I'll think of is when we ask about mood, you know, so the mental health kind of understanding of mood is really very thin, like it's up or down, it's maybe flat. You know, we have very few words to describe it. And it's thought of as a thought or something you can choose not to do. Whereas the work, that the training and the things I've learnt have really made it, no, actually, mood is a bodily experience and it's actually a bodily communication which we can misinterpret, you know. So it's helpful to get really practical about what is happening in the body and then we can work together to work out if whether we've interpreted it correctly. And, you know, when we think about anxiety, people talk about the word anxiety all the time. I don't use that word at all now because I find it so unhelpful. And instead, we look for where is the pain? Where is the funny feeling? Where is the sickness in the tummy? And then what does that mean for you today? You know, is it about anticipation, excitement even? The same bodily feelings can have different meanings. And so the question that I often ask now with mood is seeing that human beings have a range of moods and we actually need to know we have the full range, that that's part of what's being healthy. And know if someone doesn't allow themselves to have some moods or to express that they do have those moods. And so I now ask a question that says, you know, there's three main sort of negative flavors of mood, angry, sad, fearful. What's the one that bothers you the most? And then they might say, oh, I feel fear. And then I will say, okay, can you finish this sentence for me? I feel fearful that, and just that ending of the sentence gives so much content. And then I'll circle back, because I've just used that to get one of the three out. I'll circle back and say, and what about anger? Do you ever have that? 
and you know sometimes it's so surprising there's someone very prim and proper sitting in front of you and you ask the question and they'll they'll the main one they have is anger and you would have never picked it if you didn't kind of inquire in that way so I've become really fascinated by how our bodily sensations we need to tune into them as actually physiological events and so shame for example is a physiological experience it's a mistuning between me and somebody else that makes me feel sick in my tummy and makes me blush and makes me feel something's wrong and can potentially lead to me thinking something's wrong with me but that usually a misinterpretation of the bodily sensation and Brene Brown who I'm sure both of you know says that shame is about fear of disconnection and so I find that really helpful because then it means that the treatment for shame is reconnection the treatment for shame is belonging and knowing that you're loved it's not explanations about how you're great or you know how you can do it or there's nothing wrong with you those explanations don't help with shame. The thing that helps with shame is reconnecting. And so that kind of understanding what the body's trying to tell us, you know, it's trying to warn us that something you're doing right now is making the other person uncomfortable or making them switch off or there's something going on between you and them that's making it feel funny. And it's not necessarily you. So I now say to my patients, oh, they'll often come in and say, I feel so guilty that I'm not helping my mother. Or I feel so ashamed that I disappointed somebody. And I'll say, let's go back to the feeling and let's just call it tension. You're feeling a some awkwardness. And then there's three kind of potential outcomes of that. You know, one is that you're tense because you're doing something new and you're breaking a family rule and you're saying no to mum for the first time. Another is that you actually did do something that hurt somebody and you might need to say sorry. And the third is that you're feeling shame where you're attributing it to being something wrong with you. And the healing for that is to know you belong. So those are the kinds of things that have shifted for me. I'm just sitting here lapping it all up. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> but again, I guess for me, that's it's been the gift of being a GP. And I'm actually giving a talk in a little group in my neighbourhood in about a month called Pattern Recognition, a gift of living in the borderlands. And I guess my life story is one of being a migrant and I did grade eight in th three continents. And so that kind of experience of being on the edge and watching and not quite understanding the culture and trying to work it out, I kind of think that's a little bit what GPs do every day, like whether on the edge of some body of knowledge or on the edge of a patient's experience or on the edge of kind of understanding something. We know we can never know the whole, but we're trying to, we're trying to understand it. And that place is actually the place where pattern recognition is done best. You know, because once you're in the center of it, you can't see properly what's going on. And so that's a part of my journey. When I said, you know, I did normal general practice across the spectrum in my neighborhood for about 10 years. Then I shifted into this work with more just tuning into the, my patients who weren't being served in the mental health system then that they changed me, changed my practice. And then I felt a little homeless. You know, I felt like I didn't quite know where I fit. 
And I set up a transdisciplinary clinic where I had a social worker, a mental health nurse, an art therapist, a music therapist some of the time, and psychologist some of the time, trying to offer the broad spectrum of things that I was on the edge of and ran that for five years and still felt kind of on the edge, like I was doing a model of care that wasn't completely validated. Again, that uneasy borderland kind of place. And I went back and thankfully found a kind uh, research GP who could see what I was trying to do and could see that it was very aligned with general practice. Although I searched in other places, I went to the School of Psychology, I went to all sorts of places to find out where it might fit. And he thankfully brought me home and reminded me that general practice, this is what general practitioners do. You know, they see something that's not right. They look wide, then they burrow down to the details and they look wide again. And that I fundamentally was doing generalist work. And in a way, it helped me fall in love with general practice again, that it's kind of knowledge work and that this is my tribe. Obviously, there's some who aren't, but this place of thinking and being with patients in where they're at is our work. And I love that you say it in that way brought me home because I I get the sense that in the journey of GPs, you know, we go through our training and then a lot of us do develop sort of a niche interest area. And often, I guess, I'm I'm speaking for many people here, but also from my own personal experience, you get the sense that you're not a, well, I'm not a specialist in that area, or I'm not a you know, psychologist, or I'm not a, whatever you want to put it out there, a surgeon or, you know, a dermatologist or, and it's a really interesting thing because, and just recently there was a a post in um, the Creative Careers in Medicine Facebook group where someone said, you know, everyone tells me that you can do special interests when you become a GP, but don't you have to treat like all of the stuff in order to maintain your like capacity to have registration or CPD or whatever. And they wanted to do psychological work. And someone, the psychiatrist posted, come to the dark side of psychiatry. And I kind of went in there and I said, no, like if this is an interest area for you, doing general practice actually gives you a very different perspective on what health is and mental health is. And it's a very different perspective. And you know, I, we had this discussion with Pamela Douglas as well when she sort of did her research into the breastfeeding space and infant care and was sort of feeling this tension that she didn't feel aligned with really the allied health in that area either. And then really has, she described herself, what, like fallen back in love and, and realised that general practice is where her tribe is. And it is really interesting when like that that idea of coming home and really, no, I am I am a GP and what I do matters and it's different and it is a very different perspective than someone who has done different training or has it. And and I'm sure GP uh, practices, it attracts a certain type of person that finds it hard to split people into parts and see them all differently. (laughs) So uh, there's, there's a, I think a personality type and then the way that we're trained is very, very different and we're much more sort of comfortable with playing around with all of the parts and sort of bringing them all in together and seeing how the parts affect each other so you have a um an analogy in your book about Humpty Dumpty and 
bringing all the parts back together again and I really loved that because that's kind of what it sometimes feels like in you know typical day in general practice as you're sitting there in your chair trying to make sure that this person is seen as the whole person not just the sum of all their parts. Yeah well I'd learned that the origin of the word healing means to make whole and that the early word for safety is solwus and it also means whole. So those things are real gems to find as part of the the privilege of doing a PhD and doing all that chance to think and read. But on the journey too, I had this uh, realisation that even the research space has not got an established place for generalist thinking. I was shocked to find it, to be honest. I thought I would just take my idea and it would get tested against generalist ways of doing things and it would be seen if it was valid or not. And instead what I found were reductionist ways of thinking or social science constructivist ways of thinking, which also don't suit GPs because we actually do have to inject people with real things and measure uh, toxicity levels and things that, like I say, are like gravity, that they're actually there and you don't just construct them. And can I say we also talk in a language that people can make sense of rather than constructing it in a way that is only for academic interpretation, which I think, again, is so different because that's what I love about what I do is that I love having something that I can read and make sense of and interpret and put into the real world because that's where it really matters. You know, we so need the really high-level other stuff But if it only stays there, then it's of no value to anybody and being able to actually implement it into what it means for the real person who we're looking after as a whole person, then, you know, you might as well throw it into the garbage heap. But that's what gets funded rather than the stuff that we do as the generalist. It is is a fascinating, I've often talked about it as because we aren't sexy, but I think it's even worse than that actually that there is this real sense of people not getting not getting it. Well, look, and I think it's been sort of put on steroids with the whole capital E evidence-based movement because I would say that that's a certain type of evidence and that there are other forms of evidence. And there's a beautiful quote about how science is neither more nor less than careful, detailed observation and there are different ways of observing And I'm getting to uh, give a dangerous idea, which is in a few weeks, which will be before this podcast is released. But the dangerous idea is, is uh, multimorbidity iatrogenic? And I'm using a story to explain that idea, which is the idea that humans are like trees and our leaves are the symptoms and signs you can measure, maybe the test results. And the branches are the organ systems that deliver those symptoms and signs. And the ground is the place that people live and the layers of compost of the previous generations of trees. And under the ground are the roots that actually we now know connect to each other, to other trees in the forest underneath the ground. And inside the trunk is the sap that moves things up and down. And around it is the environment that influences that tree. And between the trees up in the canopy, there's canopy shyness where they don't even sort of invade each other's leaf space. They leave a little gap between them. And I kind of think that's like cultural awareness of each other. 
cultural sensitivity. And I guess I would say a reductionist evidence-based work is up in the leaves. You know, it's classifying, measuring, it's got every leaf nearly identified. There's some pathology checking of the branches, looking at the organs, taking biopsies and doing procedures that look inside those branches. And the social sciences do a lot of work working out what's going on at the root level and noticing the ground and the cultural, the air around the tree. But who's noticing the sap? Who's checking on the processes that are connecting all those things together? The neurological processes that go right through the tree, the immune, the metabolic processes that are part of the patterns, but also the stories, the memories, the sense of self, the personhood, the spirit even of the tree. And to me, I kind of think for GPs, we're one of the other trees in the forest usually. We live in the same land. Our roots are down underneath the earth, touching the other roots. So we have a unique place to reach out and hug those trunks, you know. And that work, that's really difficult to describe it. It's invisible, it's hidden, it's not measurable in the same way that the others are. And yet that's part of the rich work that we do. It's pattern recognition. It's an incredible integrative, interpretive, tuned in, built up over history with the patient. It's built through trust because so they reveal things that are hidden to us. And unless we see it and value it, it will get written out of the story. At the moment, those of us who do that work do it at our own cost. We pay for it with the time we give to the work of noticing and thinking. But I love what you're doing with this podcast because I can see there's a movement of us wanting to say we can see it, this work, we can see it. I often have a joke with Charlotte around what PhD because I don't know if uh, anyone who listens regularly, Charlotte's been doing her PhD and it was supposed to be finished, I think the start of last year, wasn't it, pre-COVID? About this time last year, yeah. You know, what you said, Johanna, there around we give our own time to do this work, you know, really resonated with me around the tenacity of people in the general practice space who care so much about maintaining the viability of general practice, the valuing of general practitioners, and trying to highlight the real benefit that clinicians in general practice offer our communities. And that work is very often unpaid and takes up a whole lot of extra time outside of our clinical work, as can be demonstrated by Charlotte's very tired-looking face today in the midst of the Sydney lockdown and, you know, working very, very closely and passionately with New South Wales Health and New South Wales Ministry to have GPs voices heard amongst all of the response to the pandemic and you know I, I certainly can see the work that has been done at that level to filter up the information about what can we do on the ground to actually help and the tree panel yes when we did plant physiology I was always struck by how amazing it was that the, the fluid channels in a tree trunk that were so powerful at putting up and down the messages. And yeah, there is that. I think that GPs often have to be the messenger of taking, or assisting the up and the down and the moving out and the gathering in 
um, and it can be, as you say, it's not only not seen, but it's it's and it's malaligned if things yeah aren't there, and you you're just not recognised for the the amount of effort that might be there being done without anybody seeing them. Yeah, I like that. And there is a social justice in what we do. Yeah, there's a lovely psychotherapist uh, in the trauma space, Cluft, who says that it's an indignity to a person to treat them with a theory that's inadequate. And I guess my sense is that it's how dare the people who are only in the leaves, how dare it be them that direct what happens for the whole trunk. So I have a tough question for you, Johanna, which is, what do you feel your PhD offers this space that shows the rest of the forest the importance of what we do and how we care for people and helps to sort of grow that that valuing of what we do as clinicians? I would say there's two parts to it. One is the methodology of my PhD because I ended up having to make a new one because I couldn't find one that let me be a GP that it was either going to force me into being a social scientist or a biomedical clinician. So I designed a methodology called transdisciplinary generalism. And I just compared the writers who write in the transdisciplinary space because they're already doing this work of how do you link disciplines, how do you bring together a whole that is made up many parts. And then I compared it to people who wrote what generalism was and found these themes that linked them. And shared language was one of those, actually, Charlotte, thinking about what you said before, and having a map, a shared map across the disciplines as well. But it was also about participation in the forming of the knowledge and the knowledge being formed through relationship, which, again, was a central thing that GPs share with transdisciplinary clinicians, and then the wide scope of what we do. In fact, I'm writing a paper at the moment which has been difficult to get published. Uh, that's another thing, getting generalist things is difficult to get published. But it's called The Craft of Generalism that says that generalism is this task of whole person scope, that it's done in a relational process, that it has a healing orientation, you know, that GPs learn the way we, we prioritise our knowledge gathering is for the practical purpose of making something better. And I love one of Louise Stone's phrases in that. She calls it the rehabilitation of sense of self as a goal that GPs have. And then the fourth part of it is integrative wisdom that we bring together, not just bringing together, but interpreting and discerning what's most important in that moment with our patient and that those can be principles for research. So that's the methodology piece. I'm just interested in why we have to rehabilitate our sense of self. That was in her paper around medically unexplained symptoms and that uh, rather than sort of diagnosing and treating, that the goal is actually around sense of self. It's around helping the person recover who they know they are. So retrieving, for me, might sit better than rehabilitating. But yes, I get it, same sort of. Yeah. And then the, the second piece from my PhD is really that, how do we define the whole? Because I, I found nothing that gave me a theoretical framework of what is whole person care? Like how wide should GP look? And, you know, there are various kind of social science theories around that, but nothing that ground back down to the body and the physiological importance that a GP might need to know the knowledge for. 
And that brought me back to what I'd been learning in trauma around sense of safety and helped me start looking for what causes threat. So my PhD was really built around two key questions. What causes threat and how do you sense that you're safe? And I asked Indigenous academics, rural and urban GPs, mental health professionals across the disciplines and patients those questions. And then I mapped what they said and came up with seven domains of the breadth of how we should look that included environment, social climate around the person, then their own personal relationships, their body, their inner experiences, their sense of self and their spirit and meaning making. Then I, I mapped that according to the transdisciplinary literature in those spaces, looking for how they approach the concept of safety. And then the other thing from how do you sense that you're safe, I mapped processes. I, I looked for verbs of how people described feeling threatened or safe and identified five dynamics that build safety. And I see them as dynamics you can have in the clinical consulting room. They can be dynamics that the clinician cares for themselves. They can be dynamics that you think about with a patient. And so those were broad awareness, calm sense-making, respectful connection, capable engagement, and owning yourself. And I see them as potentially things that can be applied across the disciplines, across different levels of capacity. You know, so you don't have to be a mental health clinician to learn how to build those things. They are sort of ordinary things we already do. And in fact, one GP said, you're describing what I already do, but I didn't have words to describe it. It's an interesting thing because I've often tried to make sense of why some people more naturally maybe can do that connectedness and assist with helping people. You know, you were talking about trauma-informed care that, I mean, I, I've i never been taught it, but whenever I read about it, I know that's what I've always done. And it is about trying to understand why some people have that skill there without having had it taught to them. And it is a really interesting thing and we can take it further because I think we're going to have to, Johanna, and I've been so loving this session, there's no way we can cut it short. See, we're going to have to do part two. Yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> That's wonderful. We'll have to, to twist her arm again to pop her on for the grilling. <laughs> <laughs> Johanna, do you have a resource or clinical tip of the week? I just thought I'd mention that the Australian Society for Psychological Medicine has the honour of Dr John Launer from London, a GP from London, who's done a lot of work in narrative medicine. And he's speaking on a topic which is narrative as evidence, evidence as narrative, why we need both, at our AGM plenary, which is on the 28th of August. So you can find details at the Australian Society for Psychological Medicine.org.au, ASPM.org.au. And it's free if you say you know me, otherwise it's $50. And the, I, I guess I see that as a potential resource to encourage the clinicians out there that the way you think and do your work is based on evidence. And Charlotte? I would just like to say everybody should obviously go and buy Johanna's book. That's what I'm about to go and do because a whole lot of what you've talked about resonates with everything that I do but at a different way in which I'm researching it. So thank you. Wonderful. 
I'll give you a little bit of a tip that the Kindle version's that little bit more cheaper. So that's, sorry, Joanna, but. Yes, unfortunately, the paperback's not coming out till June next year. So they've still got it priced for libraries in a hardback. My resource was going to be the same, but I'm going to boost it by reading one of my favourite sections of it to date, if that's okay with you, Johanna. Wonderful. What if when anyone saw a distracted child, they could see it was not a disorder in them but in their home? Or when someone with angina came into the clinic, the clinicians knew it was only a little to do with his cholesterol and a lot to do with his financial stress? What if the whole community could see that suicidality was not about mood but about hope or that sadness wasn't a psychiatric diagnosis but grief or obesity was due to intergenerational trauma and injustice and not just calories or when someone had repeated neck pain it wasn't their spine that needed an x-ray but they who needed a new office chair or when someone was jumpy at work, it was nothing to do with their workmates and something to do with their controlling partner. What if, as a community, we committed to addressing and resourcing the whole rather than focusing on perhaps the more manageable parts? Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Ash. <laughs>